0: You're listening to ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Inspired to Act is presented by PrimeMed, your leader in continuing medical education. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels.
1: While he is widely known for his pioneering surgical treatment of cardiac anomalies in infants and children, perhaps he is most famous for surgically implanting the first artificial heart in a human. And although he is an honorary member of over 50 professional societies around the world and has received America's highest civilian award, the Medal of Freedom, he says his major accomplishment has been the creation of the Texas Heart Institute and developing a school of surgery. Joining us to discuss his lifetime of accomplishments is pioneering heart surgeon and educator, Dr. Denton Cooley. Dr. Cooley, thanks very much for getting on the phone with us from uh, Houston today. My pleasure. It's really a privilege to speak to you, uh, Dr. Cooley, after hearing so much about you over these uh, years. I wonder if you could tell our listeners, who are mostly doctors and other medical professionals, who your mentors were, who got you into cardiac surgery and gave you the idea that this was the thing you wanted to do.
2: Well, I consider myself privileged to have been exposed to the first heart surgery of an elective nature. In November 1944, my professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins and his colleague Helen Tausig decided that it, uh, it was possible to correct or palliate cyanotic heart disease in children. I was privileged to be part of that team that did the first blue baby operation in November 1944. And I was inspired by that. I thought it was the dawn of heart surgery, and I was inspired by that to pursue this new field of cardiac surgery.
1: How did you have the courage at the beginning to start to do these operations uh, on humans? I assume you, you must have done a lot of animals before you did people, is that right?
2: Well, I had done some animal surgery, but by and large, I always felt that I had the capability of participating in new procedures. I didn't spend a lot of time in the animal laboratory. I learned how to tie knots and to make incisions and so forth in the operating room.
1: What were the first surgeries? Were they valve surgeries or correction of congenital defects? When did coronary artery surgery come along?
2: Considerably later. They had a number of indirect treatments for coronary artery disease, particularly the treatment of angina pectoris but it was a really indirect uh, surgery. Actually, myocardial revascularization on a more planned and logical basis occurred after coronary arteriography was introduced by a man named Mason Soans at the Cleveland Clinic. That was, I think, in 1968.
1: Ah, so that was quite a bit later by that time. So the so-called Weinberg operation came along about that time, the internal mammary?
2: That's true. That was... The Weinberg operation was one of the more indirect methods of controlling angina pectoris, where he took the internal mammary artery and implanted it into the heart muscle.
1: You've written about something called the stone heart. Tell us a little bit about what you meant by that. What happened?
2: Well, it was in patients who had severe aortic stenosis, where the left ventricle was hypertrophied and very thickened. And when we'd take them to the operating room and have them ready to open the heart, we'd clamp the aorta, and this produced ischemia or lack of blood supply into this hypertrophied muscle, and the muscle, the myocardium, went into a state of contracture, in which we call stone heart. So it was an ischemic contracture of the myocardium, and it only occurred in patients with severe left ventricular hypertrophy due to aortic valve stenosis.
1: Did this happen on reperfusion or actually during the clamping? Actually,
2: initially, it was the first ischemic attack that challenged the hypertrophied left ventricle. Once we began using potassium to arrest the heart before we started open repair, that seemed to alleviate and prevent the development of stone heart.
1: I've been very interested myself in neurogenic heart disease, in fright and other autonomic storms that cause the heart to contract, and I came across this discovery of yours, which turns out to be extraordinary because, in fact, not only does the heart look like a stone, but there's actually calcium entry as the mechanism, and it was a very formidable and important paper in understanding neurogenic heart disease. So I don't know whether you know that you had such an influence over neurology, but you have...
2: I didn't, but I, I know I've been referred to as the inventor of stone heart, which is not really anything that I'm particularly proud of.
1: Yeah, I've quoted you. Uh, there's a slide in one of my talks that I quote you, and so it's great to hear you actually tell the story of how you discovered this and how you named it. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the artificial heart. What was the circumstances surrounding that first implantation of the artificial heart?
2: Well, I'd been for several years interested in developing a total artificial heart. And we did uh, have a device which we worked on in our laboratory. And then we were trying to find some justification to use this thing clinically. And it seemed to me that it was in the early days of cardiac transplantation that we could use this uh, artificial heart as a means of bridging to heart transplantation. And we had not did not have that concept of leaving the artificial heart in place for several weeks or months, but only to maintain the patient's circulation long enough to find the heart donor. So that was the whole uh, idea behind application of the artificial heart clinically.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on Reach, MD Radio, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me today is Dr. Denton Cooley, and we're discussing his lifetime of accomplishments, including implanting the first artificial heart in a human being. Do you think, as the future unfolds with better and better technology, that this will ever come back as a way to deal with end-stage heart disease?
2: I think it is something for the future. We continue to work on uh, total artificial heart in our laboratories here at the Texas Heart Institute. And it's interesting that the uh, most recent approach has been to have a continuous flow heart and eliminate the need for a pulse. And we're trying to show that animals can live without having a pulse so long as they have an adequate circulation of blood throughout the various organs.
1: Is that right? So that the other organs, the kidney and the brain and so on, seem to be uh, okay with a continuous steady blood pressure without the usual uh, systole, diastole?
2: We have some pretty good evidence clinically that that is true. The implantation of uh, left ventricular assist devices, or what they called, LVADs, we have patients now who have that left ventricular assist, and they have no pulse at all, and they seem to tolerate that very well. That's the best evidence that we have that it might be possible to develop an artificial heart that does not produce a pulse.
1: You've had a long-standing relationship with the late Michael DeBakey in Houston. He's passed away relatively recently. And uh, I wonder if you could give our listeners some perspective on what you think his contributions to the field were.
2: Well, I mentioned my mentors throughout my early career. There was Alfred Blaylock, professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins, Lord Russell Brock of London, who was one of the first surgeons to do intracardiac manipulations, and then the late Michael DeBakey, who was chairman of the Department of Surgery at Baylor. I spent 19 years on the full-time faculty at Baylor before Mike and I had some disagreements and embarked upon a period of 40 years in a feud which became of national or international interest.
1: What do you see as his, his major contributions? Is it mainly aortic surgery, would you say? or
2: Well, I, th- I think his first recognition in cardiac surgery was in the treatment of aortic aneurysms uh, program that he and I embarked upon shortly after my arrival here in Houston in 1951. So together, we did some of the earliest work on the treatment of aortic aneurysms. And I think Mike will be remembered for his contributions on aortic disease.
1: It's ironic that in the end, he had to have a major aortic operation himself, didn't he? As He was quite old at the time. Yes,
2: he was. He was 98 years old. He had one of the most serious complications, known as a dissecting aneurysm in the ascending aorta, which is very close to the heart and the heart valve, the aortic valve. But he survived that rather critical operation and was in the hospital for about six months to recover.
1: I'd like to shift gears a little bit, Dr. Cooley, and ask you a little bit about training. You created the Texas Heart Institute, I assume, partly for patient care reasons, but also for training reasons. What are your views about education of the surgeon of the future? How do you think that ought to be done?
2: Well, we've had many innovations in clinical care of patients with cardiovascular disease, but it's always been my belief that we need to provide for continuity of these developments And that can only be done by education and inspiring young applicants for this position. And we have a a very important educational program at the Texas Heart Institute.
1: How do you do it? I mean, do you think that in order to be a surgeon, you have to be by the side of a senior great surgeon to learn? Are there other ways of teaching people? Or do you think it really has to be that way, the old-fashioned way of learning from another expert?
2: Well, unfortunately, there are no other methods that I know of where you could train a good surgeon. I think he has to work with someone who's already experienced and follow his example in order to have his own personal success.
1: I only have a couple more minutes, unfortunately, but I wanted to ask you two personal things, if you don't mind. I heard that you were a pretty serious University of Texas basketball player and played on a conference championship team or something. Isn't that right?
2: Oh, I did, yeah. (laughs) The whole four years I was in undergraduate school at the University of Texas, I played on the basketball team there in my varsity years. And apparently it didn't interfere too much with my scholastic ability, I look back on it as an important part of my training, uh, even as a surgeon. It taught me a lot about teamwork and competition and things of that nature, which you can learn on the athletic field.
1: The last thing I wanted to ask you about was about your marriage. You've been married to the same woman for 60 years. You've got a lot of kids and grandkids. I hear a lot of uh, talk among our own residents and the young people in medical school that uh, it's impossible to maintain a decent family life and have a really rigorous academic and clinical career. You seem to have done it. What's the secret?
2: Well, I met my wife, Louise, who was a a nurse on the surgical ward there at Johns Hopkins. We fell in love and were married during my senior years as a resident in Hopkins. We were privileged to have a a large family. Five daughters were born, and now I have 16 grandchildren, eight granddaughters and eight grandsons. And I think of my accomplishments, if you can call it that, has been to raise a large family and to maintain a marriage to Louise for the past 61 years.
1: That's an absolutely, it's a wonderful story and very important for our young people to hear this. I wish I had longer to talk to you, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. I'd like to thank my guest, the noted heart surgeon, pioneer and educator, Dr. Denton Cooley. Dr. Cooley, thanks so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act.
0: Thank you. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels and presented by PrimeMed, the leader in continuing medical education. At PrimeMed, we believe in you, the practicing healthcare professional, and we support your commitment to your patients. Our goal is to give you the tools to stay up-to-date with the latest developments in your field, whether you treat day-to-day patients and their average and not-so-average illnesses, or patients dealing with diverse chronic conditions. Prime CME programs are designed for you. We know you each learn differently. That's why we offer education in a variety of formats. Live, because you like to interact with peers and faculty, online because it's convenient and available to fit your schedule and in print because of its portability. Regardless of the medium, Prime delivers knowledge that touches patients. Prime CME is developed through extensive collaboration with leading professional associations, academic institutions, hospitals, technology companies, and over 1,500 prominent faculty. With over 120 live meetings and 300 plus online CME activities, 350,000 healthcare professionals globally trust PRIMED as their source to stay better informed and educated in today's always-on world. We invite you to join us in person at an innovative cutting-edge meeting and clinical education program. If it's more convenient, visit PRIMED online. For more information, visit www.pri-med.com. Thank you for learning with PRIMED.